When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. This is Simon Rose. You join me for the business of film, where I'm joined by James Cameron Wilson. Of course, we ended there with one of the best lines to any comedy ever from uh, Some Like a Dog, which I saw only recently, James, and I have to say still holds up pretty darn well. Gosh, maybe I should revisit it sometime. Oh, it's just a lovely film. I don't have a lot of time to revisit. No, of course. Most of us have the luxury, but how anybody catches up with even the majority of new films, I do not know. Well, I did see... I had an evening, a clear evening, and I didn't see an old film that I'd never seen hmm. since the press show in 1984. And I have to say, I actually thought it was better this time round. Milos Forman's Amadeus. Oh, yes, which I've seen a couple of times, but yes, it's an absolutely splendid. Yeah, splendid I mean, this oh. time I knew that Simon Callow was going to be putting on an American accent to match all the American Actors oh, I didn't. In, I didn't actually remember. I didn't actually remember that. Oh, well, knowing that know. going in, good to know. I shall. I shall put that on the, the list for an evening when I'm at a loose end. James, so tell us how is the box office doing? I think we, we had a um, substantial drop last week, but as you pointed out, it had been quite good the few weeks before. Yeah, it went down twenty three point nine percent last weekend. So I think it's probably time for some good news. Hmm. So let me commence. Up from the previous weekend, the box office in the United Kingdom and Ireland has jumped by 70.5% based on the success primarily of three films. And we have a new number one, Mm -hmm. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, which made 8.8 million over the weekend. And that is a 26.6% hike on the first Ant-Man, with a £13,069 per screen average, or I should say per site average, per cinema. That is really good. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with that. Uh, Now, as I want to allot more airtime to an exceptional film lower in the chart, I'm not going to devote too much time to this multiversal nonsense. Oh, not another one. I will say that it reunites the actors Paul Rudd, Michael Douglas, and Michelle Pfeiffer with the director Peyton Reed, and that Scott Lang, who is in the process of promoting his autobiography, look out for the little guy, is getting a decidedly big head. As he keeps on reminding people he saved the planet, a place that he has become inordinately fond of, particularly as everybody loves him and he doesn't have to pay for his own coffee. This is Paul Rudd in Ryan Reynolds' mould, id est, at his most likable. 
and I thought I was in for a, another treat, as I loved the two previous entries in the franchise, Ant-Man and mm. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Unlike most of the Marvel superhero films, Ant-Man has a relatable everyman kind of guy at its centre, even though at 53, Paul Rudd must have some kind of superpower to look so young. I might have put him at 38, and a good 38 at that. Anyway, I thought the first Ant-Man was very funny, smart, exciting, Mm -hmm. and even moving, with even the quantum aspect quite intriguing. And maybe I should point out that it had a screenplay by the almighty Adam McKay, along with Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish, and Paul Rudd himself. And that's a tough quartet Mm -hmm. to better. The sequel, Ant-Man and the Wasp, was not a disappointment either, with the addition of Michelle Pfeiffer as the mother of Paul Rudd's girlfriend, Hope, Evangeline Lilly, and proved equally entertaining, funny and exhilarating. The whole concept of less is more really played against the epic pomposity of the other Marvel films. Sadly... Yes, I sense, sense there was a however or something similar coming, yes. Well, with a budget of $200 million, <sighs> bear in mind the first two outings combined income at the global box office was $1 billion, $142 million. So the third one has opted for the bigger is better school of thought. Mm. And so Scott Lang, Hope, Hope's parents, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer, and Scott's teenage daughter Cassie, played by Catherine Newton, find themselves transported to the quantum realm where everything is far-fetched and a riff on the cantina scene from Star Wars. There's a broccoli man and a jelly mould who laments the fact that Paul Rudd has seven holes and he doesn't have any. And so we have portals opening into new dimensions and a villain who not only destroys entire worlds, but destroys entire timelines. This time, the screenplay is credited solely to the TV producer, Jeff Loveless, best known for working on the TV talk show, Jimmy Kimmel Live. And I'm afraid it shows. Dispiritingly, Loveless has been signed up to pen the next entry in the franchise, Avengers The Kang dynasty. It's not a direction I will be looking forward to sharing. Quantum mania is now just meaningless, bloated with ideas stolen from other movies and with an array of cliches, be they visual or audio. It's not a good sign, Simon, when even the sound effects get on your nerves. (laughs) No, no, I guess it is, (laughs) James. Oh, I'm disappointing. Disappointing. I don't think I saw the second. I saw the first and enjoyed it immensely. So perhaps I should yes, I remember. watch the second, but I don't certainly don't want to see um see wasn't there a gag involving Thomas the Tampa tank engine in the first one, I seem to remember, which had been yes, laughing, there was. Up, yes, laughing, there was. laughing uproariously, though I can't really remember it now. But yeah, okay. Well let's move on then, James. I think any any time that things like metaverses or multiple universes are are mentioned, uh, I can sort of hear you groaning from hundreds yeah. of miles away. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. We've, we've done it. Been there, done that. Okay, so where now? Right. We have at number two, Push and Boots, The Last Wish, which mm. I also loathe, which was at number one. Up 3%, but it was, of course, half term. That made in its second weekend £3.2 million for a total of 
1.2 million. Mm -hmm. It has already eclipsed the total of the first Puss in Boots, which made 15.6 million. So that's doing incredibly well. But again, it's sort of designed for the ADHD generation. And yes. it's hard to keep. It's just frenetic. and just. I, mean, I do know, actually, some children who saw it. Um, everybody I've talked to has loathed it. I'm talking about real people, not film yes, critics. Yes. And even their children said, Mama, would you not take me to the next Puss in Boots film? Which is really interesting. But it's gone up 3%. We have Magic Mike's Last Dance at number three, which was at number two, down 42%, but that's more of an adult movie, with a total now of 3.8 million. At number four, we have Avatar The Way of Water, which was at number four, down 36%, has now overtaken Titanic oh. as the third highest grossing film of oh. all time. Excluding inflation, but even so, very well, impressive. Yeah, we're just talking gross yeah, here. Yeah. Just behind Avatar itself and <laughs> Avengers Endgame, the latter in which Paul Rudd saved the world. And in the UK, it is now the 12th highest grossing film of all time, having overtaken to Toy Story 3 and about to wash over The Lion King. <laughs> At number five, we've got Epic Tales, jumped up 28% in the half term the story of a mouse called Patty who battles Poseidon with a total now of 1.2 million. So the top five alone in our chart are 101.4% higher than the previous weekend. So yeah. these are rosy figures, Simon Rose. They are, as you point out, half term, but that only account for a couple of those um, films, really. Oh, so, okay. Well, Marvel is it's, back. It's, it's, and people yes. love Marvel. And, yeah. and people love... Obviously, um, Puss in Boots yeah. and DreamWorks. Yes. Uh, number so six, we've that, got... Are you about to review something? Because if you are, we perhaps ought to take a break beforehand. I will tell you when I'm about to review okay. something, and we will take a break. Useful. Okay. Uh, number Excellent. six, we've got Knock at the Cabin, M. Oh, yes. Night Childman's very disappointing apocalyptic a drama with Rupert Grint and Dave Bautista, down 50% for a total of $2.8 At number seven, we have Titanic which is down 69%. I think most people, a lot of people have probably already seen it, mm -hmm. which now has a total in this country of £82.4 million. Pounds. True, though, as you often point to... out, better to see things at the cinema than um, at home, uh, especially, oh, something as, especially something as spectacular as that. Yeah, Indeed. It, it is a real movie movie. Mm. Anyway, uh, we do have a new film at number eight, which I will talk about after the break. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Very professionally done, James. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to Business Film with James Cameron Wilson. Um, I, you, know, you don't really need me, James. I can go off and make a cup of tea. You just keep thundering <laughs> on. I'll come back at the end. So uh, what is the new film? Tell us. This is a film that has one and... Oscar nomination for Best Picture and for Best Screenplay. It's called Women Talking, and oh. it made only £183,000, I am afraid to say. There is an extraordinary moment in Women Talking, one of those great scenes that relies on surprise. Think the ending of The Truman Show, but which has been used as the opening shot of the trailer. Ah, so I have not seen that, but I read one critic who inadvertently gave away what I think it is, and I was absolutely livid. 
So you should be. So yeah. once again, I beg you all to avoid all yeah. pre-publicity of the film. Women Talking is the fourth feature from the Canadian filmmaker Sarah Polly, who started out as a child star before appearing as an adult in such films as The Sweet Hereafter, The Hanging Garden and My Life Without Me, all of which I recommend strongly. She then adapted the Alice Munro novel The Bear Came Over the Mountain for the screen, the story of a woman with Alzheimer's, and directed it too with Julie Christie in the lead. The film, away from her, was simply extraordinary and not only secured an Oscar nomination for Julie Christie, but a nod for Sarah Polly's screenplay as well. For such a talented filmmaker, it seems a shame that Sarah Polly has made so few films. She directed away for, from her 17 years ago and has only since directed Take That Waltz and Stories We Tell, the latter a poignant autobiographical documentary told in the form of a detective story and narrated by her own father. Here, with her fourth feature, as I said, for which she's received her second Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay, as well as for Best Film, the narrator is a girl recalling the same dreamy observational stance of the young voice taking us through Terence Malick's Days of Heaven, with which the film, I think, shares a poetic rural ambience. In fact, most of the voices in Women Talking are female, save for that of August, played by Ben Whishaw, who is the only one who can read and write. Not that you'd think it, but the film is set in 2010 in a Mennonite settlement somewhere in the United States, although the true events from which the story is taken occurred in Bolivia, as recorded in Miriam Toe's novel of the same name. An opening caption declares that what follows is an act of female imagination, which sounds an ominous note of irony, because this is based on a true story. Mm. For these women and girls, 11 in all, have been told that the nocturnal attacks that they have become subject to are acts of their imagination or of ghosts or even of Satan. However, in spite of their poor formal education, these are highly intelligent women, and they are only too aware that they have been knocked out by a strong tranquilizer used for cows and then raped and beaten. Then, when they awake in the morning, they find themselves covered in blood and bruises and often pregnant. While this female branch of the colony is fiercely religious, they have reached an impasse and need to decide whether or not to fight back, stay and take their ritual punishment, or leave altogether into a world of which they know nothing. Jans, played by Frances McDormand, perhaps the most devout of all, fears that if they fail to ask for forgiveness and to take it upon themselves to leave, will obstruct their own path into the kingdom of heaven. While Una, played by Rooney Mara, argues, surely there must be something worth living for in this life, um, not only the next. And so the community's representatives set themselves 48 hours while the men are away to come to a democratic decision of what to do with their future. Based on the information I have given you, 
I will understand if you think this sounds like a rather stagey confection, as basically the film is just women talking. Indeed, most of the action takes place in one attic in a barn, and Sarah Polly has pretty much drained all the colour out of her visual palette and keeps the music to a minimum, all of which is hugely in the film's favour. It really does concentrate the focus on the drama at the heart of the story. Any lesser filmmaker will have thrown in cheap distractions, immediately exhibiting a lack of confidence in the strength of the material. What is so remarkable about women talking is how it achieves so much with so little, other than using the extraordinary talents of a roster of amazing actresses, Frances McDormand, Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jessie Buckley, Judith Ivey, August Winter, and Sheila McCarthy. Nothing tells a story more dramatically, I think, than the human face, as we are programmed to respond to from birth. Picking out faces in the grain of wood or the in the clouds in the sky, and it's the faces of Claire Foy and co. who power Sarah Polly's rich, nuanced dialogue. It's not often that I forget that I am in a cinema, but so immersive is the drama and the imagery of this film that I was completely transported, very moved, very disturbed. And, and as I believe, so it seemed around me, were the cinema goers witnessing this, this extraordinary film. And Ben Wishaw, too, is magnificent. It's one of the best things he's done. It's a very, very special piece. It, did you ever see John Cassavetes' faces? Oh, I think when I was... Yeah, probably when I was a teenager, but I can't remember it. Okay. No, I, I've never seen it, but I'd be interested because I Sometimes think... I've seen face... but I really can't remember, James, I'm afraid. That was when I okay. saw, you know, I was virtually seeing two films every day, just trying yeah, desperately, yeah, okay. you know. No, I'd like, to, I'd like to see faces because I think the human face does tell so many well, different that, stories. that seems absolutely um, extraordinary. Um, it, thank it you, was. James. That's women talking. Now um, we're going to go further down the chart because I think there's another one yet you want to review. Um, um, yes, there is. At number nine, we've got Plane, which mm -hmm. was at seven, down 50%, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Good old bit of hokum that yep. kept me on the edge of my seat with Gerard Butler. Excellent. Why are you laughing? I just like the phrase. Excellent bit of hokum or whatever. It was. <laughs> okay. Hokum's a great word. I, I was going to try and see that tomorrow, but it seems to have vanished from quite a few cinemas. So I chose to go local to see something else rather than that. Okay, well, it's a shame, but it's made three point five million pounds. Okay, number ten, we've got another great film, The Whale, which was at number six, really plummeted. I think people just aren't keen to watch a film, a stagey film. Yeah, I about... tried persuading friends, and one friend has said something. Oh, I don't like to go to films that emotionally manipulate me, and I said, well, you can't go to very many, then, can you? <laughs> I mean, that's the whole well... point of cinema, surely. Well, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's down, sadly, 56% mm. with a total of 1.9 million. But Shame. it is so moving. Yeah. It is so... And, and thought-provoking. Mm. And Brendan Fraser is amazing, who was nominated for an Oscar. Could not agree more. Now, I'm going to have to drop down the chart a bit to number 29. Wow. Okay. Which is a film called Nostalgia, which only made £22,653. 
I very rarely review an Italian film on this program, so I thought I'd give Nostalgia a try, which is showing across the country at select cinemas. I think the last Italian film I reviewed on this show was Toscana, although strictly speaking, although it was set in Tuscany, it was actually Danish. So that brings me, I think the last film, Italian film, was The Life Ahead, for which Sophie Loren was heavily tipped for an Oscar but wasn't even nominated. Anyway, Nostalgia is directed by the prolific Mario Mattoni, who, in spite of his productivity, I have failed to catch up with until now. The film starts in an ancient European city with the caption, Knowledge is Nostalgia. He who has not lost himself possesses not, which means that before you can gain self-knowledge, you have to lose yourself first, according to the Italian filmmaker mm. Pier Paolo. Pasolini. We first see our protagonist, Felice Lasco, played by Fia Francesco Favino, on board the plane, where he is asked by the stewardess if he would like tea or coffee. In Arabic, he is then driven through the streets of this ancient Italian city to a hotel, and peering out of the cityscape, he ponders on the modern intrusion of the business district designed by the late Kenzo Tang, cutting off the classical heart of what was Felice's homeland. Now, Mario Martoni is not the sort of director to use captions, so we have to work things out for ourselves, which I actually prefer, although I have no knowledge of Kenzo Tang's business district of Naples, so I didn't know where I was, uh, never having actually been to the city. But gradually we learn that Felice was born in Naples, that he's been away for 40 years and now lives in Cairo and is ma married to an Egyptian woman. Meanwhile, he wanders the old streets of his youth, staring up at the denizens who stare down at him, because most Italian people love nothing more than to lean on their balconies and stare into the street, even when not in lockdown. Now, I am happy for a good director and a good cameraman to guide me through a foreign city, knowing that sooner or later a story will unfold. And sure enough, Felice eventually tracks down his mother, who has moved and is now blind and decrepit. And the scenes of their reunion are probably the best in the film. But Felice has someone else that he wishes to be reuni reunited with. And this is where I felt nostalgia came apart with the dreaded flashback. We know they are flashbacks because they play out on a reduced screen size, which gives them the look of home movies. And for me, at least, I found these scenes entirely hokey. We learn that Felice was a bit of a wild teenager charging around the narrow streets on his moped, causing havoc. And this is where I became irritated with the film. A heavy inevitability settles in. And quite frankly, I got rather fed up of watching Pier Francesco Favino wandering around Naples with the same set expression etched on his mm -hmm. craggy face. I love art house cinema. I thought it was very atmospheric and... Um, Naples looks amazing, but I, I, it really, it was just hokey and it became predictable at the end. Oh, well, that's a great shame, James. Great shame. Um, that had been one I'd been wondering what you were going to say about. Um, but that's it uh, for this edition of The Business of Film. My thanks to James Cameron Wilson. We'll be back with more of The Business of Film at the same time next week. Nice to see a box office up by 70.5%, even if it is many films that you're not very keen on, James. Uh, that's it, though, for now. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Easy, miss. I've got you. 
You've got me. Who's got you? I am not an animal. Where the devil am I supposed?